Hello, everybody. You're listening to the podcast for Angel Nears, a Silicon Valley community of startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and today our guest is Jim Upsitnik. He brings 25 years of experience building successful internet businesses in healthcare, logistics, retail, automotive, manufacturing, and mortgage industries. Most recently, Jim was a chief operation officer at Capsalon, a cloud-based digital platform for the mortgage space that was acquired by Ellie May in October of 2019. He's also a founding investor and advisor to numerous startups at the Battery Incubator. Today, we're going to talk about what every founder should know about, defining core values and culture for startups. Before we get into that, Jim, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks, Oleg. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here. You were with a couple of well-known companies throughout your career. Can you tell me a little bit about where you've been and uh, just some of those experiences? Yeah, no, happy to. Yeah, I've had the good fortune of, of being associated with some interesting companies over my career, but I usually like to start it all because I think I think for any person and in the work world, the overall context of an individual is important. So uh, I actually grew up on on the East Coast in the, the New York tri-state area, um, specifically in Connecticut. And uh, actually, my both sides of my family were immigrants. It was my grandparents that came over to the U.S. to, uh, you know, start a new life and basically lay the foundation, a significant part of the foundation for for my success, as well as I have three older brothers and they, too, are quite successful in their own regard. And, you know, you attribute a lot back to, uh, you know, prior generations. But one of the key things that, that got me into technology was my dad. He was a Navy guy, served on submarines, and then joined IBM back in the, I think it was the 60s, hmm. and worked there for 20 plus years. And of course, so given that, I got exposure to a lot of technology early on and and then hence decided that that's what I wanted my career to be about. So um, so I went to Princeton, got my uh, electrical engineering slash computer science degree uh, and then and then actually had a go at being a developer over in Japan for Mitsubishi Electric for three years, but learned I wasn't really the best developer on the planet and so I better move to the business side. To, to where I think I could best serve companies and customers. And so I made the transition uh, at business school, at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And then, and then that's really when I was at business school is when I had an internship at Netscape. And Netscape, that was back in 96. So Netscape was still a high-flying company. The, the internet world was its oyster, and it was just such a fun place to work. There was just so much opportunity and innovation that was happening, and that definitely, that gives you a bug. So yeah, after I graduated, I decided that, hey, it's time to come back out to the Bay Area, and I've basically been here ever since, so what's that, 23 years now, and not only built my professional life, but built my, uh, my personal life with my wife and, and two daughters. And I've had great opportunities to work at companies that have done amazing things in the market and have gone through challenges. And companies like Commerce One in the electronic B2B procurement and marketplace world, or Navis in the logistics world, or Everdream slash Dell in the IT asset management space, and Taleo slash Oracle in the human resources, technology space, and then, as you said, most recently, Capsulon in the fintech space. But one of the things that I've learned in, throughout my career is just the, important, the, the, the importance of values and culture. And when you, you know, I, I've never started my own company, and I have the highest regard for, for people who, who do that. I think it's, it's such a difficult thing to do and to be successful. But I've worked with entrepreneurs, I've partnered with them in businesses, and I think what, what is common, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you're more of an operator like me, is values and culture are just so important to, to a company, to its success, it's, it's, it's not only its current success, its future success, and the growth potential 
that it has in the market. So yeah, I've had the the good fortune of of working at not only well-known companies, but with executives and colleagues who are just wicked smart, are upstanding individuals, great people that you want to just hang out with and and just know how to build companies. And whether that's in a VC-backed world or in a private equity-backed world or in a public public company world, even though those are different ways to fund companies on an ongoing basis, uh, my belief is that you know values and culture are just so key to to a, a company and investors. They do investors do come and go um, based on different stages of companies, but values do not come and go. Values are there for the long term, and culture changes over time to adjust to to circumstances, but it's all grounded in, in the core values. So, uh, so anyhow, hopefully that, uh, gives a a quick overview of who I am and kind of what I've done and sets the tone for this conversation. No, you did great. I've done a lot of these podcasts and, uh, that was one of the better little introductory monologues I've heard. A lot to unpack there. I think, uh, you know, I, I was like biting my tongue the whole time, wanted, wanting to jump in, but I let you go. But the first thing I noticed was you, you had two immigrant parents. I just have the one, but I attribute uh, a lot of my own early successes to having a parent who came from another country and has a whole other view of the world. And um, it just it just gives you a, a really unique perspective and sort of sets you up to approach things in an interesting way. I, I agree. I think it's it, it like you said, it gives you a different perspective. And it I don't know, I, I think it helps drive curiosity. I think being curious is so important for anyone in whatever job they do if they want to be high performing. Mm-hmm. And the curiosity of just understanding where your family came from and visiting your family in, you know, my Half of my family's from Slovakia and the other half is from Germany. And over the years, I've had the, the pleasure of getting to know both sides of the family in person in those countries. And it just shows you that there is a, there's a, there's a different way to view the world than just what we, how we think of things here in the U.S. Yeah. But it does give you a greater appreciation for what we have here in the United States and especially with everything going on in the world and in our country with coronavirus and uh, racial justice, it just gives you, gives you a greater appreciation for different cultures. And also don't forget where you came from because there's other people now who are trying to basically accomplish the same thing. And I think that's what makes our country so powerful is immigration and bringing those unique perspectives. And then when you take it down to an individual company, and I believe one of the key values of any high performing company is, is, uh, you know, embracing diversity and diversity of thought, diversity of gender, diversity of race. And then ultimately having people who are thinking differently is is actually accretive to the success of the company because you just don't then get into this, especially in tech companies, you don't get into this singular mindset. You're constantly being challenged because I'd much rather be challenged inside of my company than I would outside by competitors who suddenly zoom ahead. So to me, this diversity does, does enable you to be to basically stay on your toes a lot longer and to challenge everything that you've done in the past and make sure that it's right moving forward or helps you readjust and brings new ideas to the table. So, so that it, it, for me, it personally has had a significant impact on, you know, my life and how I think of the world and, you know, just that my grandparents made the decision to come here and I just, I, I thank them for, giving me that essentially that leg up in the world because i do think it is a leg up absolutely well said there's a lot there um, and i want to keep talking about values one thing that piqued my interest while you were sort of introducing yourself is you said you moved from being a developer and you started working at netscape i'm curious what the values and culture were like there uh, that were so 
formative for you? So when I joined the company in, in, in the summer of 96 and then joined full-time in 1997, so the company had, was a public company at that time. And I think it had gone public in, I think it was late 95-ish, somewhere around there, early 96. So I, I wasn't there on the, from the beginning on, but I would say a lot of the culture, and there were, what, I think a few thousand people at the company at the time. And, and Netscape was, they were a, such a pioneer in the internet space. I mean, hell, creating the browser and then all other technologies that are both in the consumer world as well as in the um, the B2B world was, you know, it, it just, there was so much innovation and new thinking that was going on inside the company. And, and the one key value and part of the culture was this innovation mindset and this growth mindset, because it wasn't just the culture. It was like, literally, this was the only company that was doing this internet stuff. And yes, there was Microsoft that was starting to get into it, but there are a lot of companies that, that a lot of the bigger companies and one that I worked for Oracle that were dismissing the internet at that point. And now we all know what happened that eventually everyone's gotten on board. And of course, you know, significant innovation has happened since then in the last 25 years. But so I think that was a key part. The other part was just having fun at work. And we were, we were so young. I mean, it was amazing when you look around, there was just so many young people because we are the ones who grew up when the browser, like literally was a download somewhere on the web or I can't remember how I got access to my first browser version. I mean, I know that in college, this is going to date me, was I was one of the first ones who actually used email. And it's an, it's an odd to say that, but for me, being on the forefront of things like email or the browser or the internet, that's always made me curious about new technologies and helps me to stay... I guess to say sharp, because knowing that there's just innovation is constantly being pumped out. So I think Netscape and being a part of that journey with with the company and just being in and I, look, I was in the cheap seats, and the, you know the one thing now I look back on it and I say, wow, if if I was leading that company, well, that must have been so difficult to make a choice as to what do you actually focus on. Because they were first mover in all parts of the market from a consumer website to e-commerce to B2B platform technology to applications. I mean, you name it, Netscape had an offering. And in many ways, it's kind of sad how what then became of the company being sold to America Online and then eventually the Netscape brand going away. but at the time, you know, there was just so much to be worked on. And I can only imagine the, the difficulty of trying to spread the dollars across all these different areas and wanting to do it all. And I think in some ways that may have been the undoing of the company as well as invoking the ire of, of Microsoft. But, but still, it, it just was such a fabulous experience, experience. And, you know, I think showed to me just as an employee of the company is how important leadership is in terms of setting the tone for the com- for a company like they did at Netscape. And, you know, it was a combination of Mark Andreessen and Jim Barksdale, who was the quote unquote professional CEO that was brought in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just set the tone and they, they set the tone around results and but that there was autonomy and getting work done and innovation was key. And we had fun doing it. I mean, we had the Friday beer bashes. We'd all get together in the parking lot and they'd bring out kegs of beer and we'd all just have relax after the end of the week. But that just builds community around the company. And also, you know, being young and not having a family, anything like that. That really became my, you know, my, my full focus. And a lot of the friends, you know, a lot of my good friends came out of there at the, from that time. And so it's just such a great bonding experience. And uh, so, you know, as I've then moved up and I'm leading my own organizations, I do look back and I say, what can I do to, to try and replicate that mm-hmm. and to create a culture and an environment that 
that embraces innovation, having fun, building relationships with people so that so that people can enjoy enjoy themselves. And it's work doesn't have to be a slog. Uh, it can be very meaningful and powerful in someone's world. Right, right. I uh, my my dad's gonna hate me for bringing up this story from kindergarten. Maybe not, but I guess my question next is culture and values. Like they are invisible. They're hard to put your finger on. And, and there's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem too. Like, does the culture come from the leadership and the successes of the company, or does the culture become the successes of the company? So I, I guess I just want to ask, like, what are core values to you and just a little bit about why they're important? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that culture and values are invisible. I don't, I don't believe that. I think culture and values are very visible. And if they're not visible, then chances are you don't have values and you don't have a culture. Uh, or you don't value it and you assume that these things magically appear out of nowhere. I, I don't believe that. I believe that that values and culture are, it, it is like you have to put effort into creating these. And in some ways it is innovation just in a different way. And you have to be very, very conscious of them, very aware for them to have a meaningful impact and to to help define a company. So I, I actually believe that, that it starts back at the beginning of the company. And in most successful companies, if you look, I think one of the best, best examples is Hewlett Packard. Uh, maybe not today because they've been through so much change and acquisition. But if you look at the run of Hewlett Packard from its founding in the, what is it, the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, all the way probably up till, I don't know, I'm going to guess the 2000s, maybe about 10 to 15 years ago, the values of that company were set all the way back at the beginning by Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard. And I think any entrepreneur, as they're thinking about a startup and as they're, they're getting going, I think it's actually one of the first things you have to do as a founder to set the tone for the company and, and really to set the tone for yourself. Because ultimately, you as a founder or a co-founder, right? Let's say you have, a, let's say you have two or three people that you're starting a company with. If you guys, if, if those two or three men and women do not align in terms of how they view the world and what is important and what principles they have. To me, it's just a ticking time bomb till one or many of the founders leaves. Mm -hmm. So to me, defining the core values up front are so critical because to, for me, values are those beliefs and the principles that you hold dearly and that don't change over time. They are, they come from context of the tech world. They do come from, in most cases, come from the founder because founders in tech companies do have an outsized influence and impact on an organization because they are the ones that put the hard work in, usually, you know, put some capital, whether it's money, time, they took the risk. And so it's, it really is their company. And in order to, collect a group of people around you that you're proud of, that you feel are going to help you grow that business, well, they better be aligned in terms of their principles. And then to me, culture is, is really about how a company gets work done in the context of those values and principles. Um, and culture can change over time because... A, a culture that is, you might have a culture that is for, from the early days of the company up through 50 people. That could be one culture. And then as you grow and you bring more people on, you might say, hey, look, how we worked previously isn't going to work at scale, but yet we still want to, we're still holding true to our own values and principles. So, you know, I'll give you my, my best example. My most recent example was Capsalon. And so uh, Capsalon was founded back in 2004 by Sanjeev Malani, who was the founder and CEO. 
a serial entrepreneur, and he laid down the values of the company back in 2004. It's kind of if you think about, okay, I'm going to write this business plan. I'm going to basically have a pro forma P&L to figure out where I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to have my, uh, of course, my product roadmap strategy. I'm going to have my mission statement. Well, he defined back then the value, the core values and the principles of the company. So when I joined the company 12 years later as the chief operating officer, one of the things that he and I were very much aligned on was the importance and power of principles and culture. And we sponsored, he and I sponsored an initiative to relook at the culture and to redefine it. And as part of that, you look at your values and principles. And we had collected a new executive team. And so we wanted everyone to have the opportunity to weigh in on the principles and the values and then hence the culture. And the interesting part about it all is that when we were done, we had something like 10 or 11 core principles that we laid out. Let's say it was 10. Nine out of the 10 were basically the core principles that had existed since the beginning of the company. We added one. And it was around protecting customer data in the context of the cloud and how important it is to, to protect customer data, you know, in the market that we're serving. So we didn't actually, we might have tweaked some words here and there, but at the end of the day, the nine core principles that were defined back in 2004 held true in 2016, and we added one. So if you, so if you take that as the example, and then we articulated the culture that we were aspiring to around those core principles. And what was it that we as an executive team wanted to promote and the representation of how work was getting done and how we wanted work to get done. And so our big concern as we went into this was that as we grew and got larger as a company, we were losing some of our entrepreneurial roots are the innovation, the speed, um, the fast decision-making, the failing fast, some of these things that we didn't want to, to lose sight. We actually felt that the company was kind of becoming too, too of a waterfall and kind of all the way being managed from the top down. And so we, as the, the leaders at the top said, no, we don't want that. We want everyone in the organization to be making decisions based on their ability to solve problems. Because our belief was give people a problem to solve and let them loose. And then ask them, what do you need? What do you need to go solve that problem? And as long as it was done in the context of customers and in the context of our core principles, then, hey, we're good. And then, of course, we had to, of course, give some of that, give the strategic guidance for what we, our mission and our North Star for the company was so that people had a framework to work within. But it was, it did come from the top. And in terms of saying that we do have a culture, but like I said, those values, they didn't change. They really didn't change. And I went through that I, at the beginning in the, of the exercise, I thought, ah, okay, we might change a few. But when, when all was said and done, and when we, we really grinded hard on it, and so for founders, I would definitely encourage them, don't, don't take it lightly. Like put the time in to truly define your principles and whether you're a, a sole founder or a set of founders, you know, put the time in, get the people who are around you that you, you know, you want their counsel to, to pick it apart. But put the energy and time into it because if you do it right now, then that that will that gives you a framework for hiring the right people that you want on your journey and aligns everyone around what truly matters, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I like how you at like now we're thinking about this from the founder's perspective. So let's just keep going along that train of thought. And I think I, I, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I don't think values and principles are necessarily invisible. They're very real. But it's kind of like, 
my favorite example is momentum in hockey. I watch a hockey game and when one team has the, all the momentum on their side, you can just see it like the ice looks tilted. So it's very, it is very visible. It's something that's hard to describe because it's not on the surface, but very real, very visible. That being said, I'm wondering from the startup builder's perspective, when they're deciding their values and principles for the company, you know, you kind of have your own personal values and principles. Should your values and principles for the company reflect your own principles as a founder? Do you want something to fit for the culture you're trying to build? And then a little bit more detail about like what exactly your values should address, you know? Is it like how we act internally? Is it how we hold ourselves when we speak to other companies? That sort of thing. Like what should your core values be about? Yeah. So as a founder, I think as you as you define these values, it has to come from who you are as a person. I don't th- I think it's really hard to I don't know how you can I actually don't know how you can separate who you are as a person and as a founder from what this company is that you're starting. Because in many ways, they're one and the same. Because it's your passion as a founder around a particular a particular problem that you're solving, a particular innovation, whatever it is that causes you to start a company. You know, usually there's some sort of real underlying personal story that led you to this point. I think there's very few successful companies where someone said, kind of did a, I'm going to call it a business, created it out of a business school project where it's like, okay, I'm going to start a company and I'm first going to think about, okay, what is the market space that I should enter that might be the most lucrative? It's like, no, no one does that. Usually there's a personal story about why you started it. There's something that happened. You saw a hole and you said there, no one is filling this hole. So I'm going to go fill it. My professor, my professor used to say, uh, theory is, is great in theory and practice is great in practice. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And look, I've, you know, having gone to business school, I give a lot of credit to, to helping me, it, it helped me open my eyes to what happens outside of purely just coding and technology. But I got to tell you, my, it's my experiences at companies that have really been the biggest lesson. I would say business school gives you a great framework and you know, helps you hone your problem solving and thought decision-making process. But at the end of the day, it really is. It's the school of hard knocks out there. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years, um, not having started a company, but as an operator is that if I don't believe in what I'm doing, like truly believe it, like I, I go, I look at opportunities and I do my analysis and look at market opportunity, TAM, revenue potential, like all this stuff, right? But at the end of the day, it really has to cut to my core. It has to cut to the emotional side where I just take a step back and I say, is this something that I want to work on and keep and have passion? And so as a founder, I think most founders, if not all, will say we have a passion to start our company. And that passion and energy basically says, look, if you're going to take that risk, you get to define what this company's values are. Now, you know, most most values do resonate with a lot of people. And so you ask the question of, well, like, what are these values or core principles? Like, what's the level that's, I heard your question. So what's the level? It's not about how work gets done. It's not about the day-to-day interactions that you have. It's a much higher order. It's a higher altitude of how you think about, how you think about customers. How do you want to serve customers? So at, at Capsulon, we were a mission-critical platform for the U.S. mortgage industry. If our system went down, they couldn't loan money out. And therefore, they couldn't run their business. They, they wouldn't bring money in. So we said one of our core principles was serving customers so they can depend on us and being proactive about that. Because we knew that, that our customers' business is mission critical and therefore our 
business is mission critical. Another example is that we were a private equity backed company. And so we were profitable, oddly here in, in Silicon Valley. We were a profitable SaaS company. And so we had to be very financially prudent because we weren't going out to raise money from VCs. We were using our profits to fund new investments. So any dollar that we could save in one place, we could put towards innovation. You know, some other examples were, and I'm going to use Capsulon given that it's the most recent, is ethics and integrity were key principles. Respecting diversity was a key principle. You know, driving individual learning and continual development, build, you know, having a growth mindset that was focused around innovation and that we're fundamentally excited to come to work. And we like to laugh and we like to solve problems together and we like to build real human relationships. And so, you know, we wrote these down and they were written down from the beginning. We republished them and part of the work, we actually defined our culture on a piece of paper and we use that as a, you know, we use that on a regular basis with the company. And we said, it is so important, whether you've been at the company for 15 years or you've been here for 15 days, you must know what these principles are. And we made sure that we reinforced them from the executive perspective, because we knew that we had to take the ownership of driving our principles and our culture to make them very visible and to demonstrate to people in the company that this isn't just lip service. We are using these to, because we believe in them, because this is how we want the company to work. And we want to, the right people who want to work this way to be a part of the company. And then it gives other people an opportunity if they don't align with it. Okay, that's fine. If, if you don't align with how we want to work as a company, then this may not be the right place for you. And they can self-select them themselves out. Okay. As the company grows, how do you make sure that those core values don't get lost? You know, because you bring in people and the culture kind of changes naturally. So how do you hold on to those core values that kind of brought you to that point? Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's a great question. Cause it's something that, that we, we talked a lot about, at least at Capsalon, we talked a lot about it because we didn't want them to become invisible. We didn't want them to become just an afterthought. We wanted it to, we wanted our, our values and our culture to be upfront. So like I said, it has to start from the top. And so myself and the CEO, we were the main, we were the main quarterbacks of this. We felt that it was just so, and you know, we had a shared view that values and culture are critical to an organization and not only putting the investment in, in terms of looking back at the, the values and adjusting them slightly, as well as articulating a culture, but then knowing that it had to start with us and we had to put the time in each and every day to reinforce them. So it started there. And so simple things like in, in many ways are the work that we put around the culture was sort of like a product launch. And we said, Hey, we, we did all put all this time and effort and energy and a lot of dollars we, we spent and we're not just going to simply just have an all hands meeting and announce it once. Like we put together a product launch plan and we said, we have to get onto a drumbeat so that people have an opportunity, not only to hear about what it is, but to start embracing it, to start understanding, to ask questions. So we had at Capsulon, we had a lot of people outside of the United States. So the interesting challenge that we had was building a a company culture that that still enabled individual country cultures to flourish inside of our offices. So we had, of course, people in the, in the United States, but in different parts. We had people in the Bay Area. We had people. We had a main office in uh, uh, Michigan. Uh, we had some people in the Southeast, and you know, even within the U.S., different cultures are exist. 
But then we had people in India, in Belarus, and in Poland. And each of those, they have a different mindset and thought process and, of course, different history. But what was important for us was that we define a culture that is basically can be embraced regardless of what country you live in. And so after defining it, we then basically did a roadshow as part of our quote unquote product launch. And so we would, we visited each of those geographies. We sat down in small groups. We explained it, what it meant, answered questions. And then we would follow up a quarter later. So it really was a, the way to make it stick is you need people to internalize it and to, to make it their own and, and figure out what are the points that resonate? Because, you know, a list of call it 10, 11 principles, it's hard for people to digest and to truly understand it. We, as the executive team, we grinded on it hard. So each and every point we spent a good deal of time understanding why it's so important. When you're rolling this out, you need to give people that time to internalize and then to figure out how can they make this a part of their daily lives. And that really is, if if you're successful, then people embrace it. You start seeing indications how it's being used in daily life. So, you know, one example, one very simple example that one of the we defined our culture in terms of an acronym and it was called grow and grow stood for gratitude results, ownership and wonder. And so the first step was, okay, gratitude and expressing gratitude in the organization was extremely important. Like just go and thank people for great work that they've done. So we, we use Slack and we set up a gratitude channel. And you'd be surprised as to how quickly it started happening where people would just put a quick note on the gratitude channel in Slack. And that was available for anyone in the company to see and to join. And you just see these people thanking each other for the for little things, big things, medium things. It was It was actually quite powerful. And that was just a way to reinforce this idea of gratitude on a daily basis. And so we tried to look for how can we reinforce these things so that it just becomes a normal part of their lives. And then you have the other areas like you have your all hands meetings where we used grow as our framework for discussing our results uh, as well as what we're doing. Of course, you have to reinforce this at the board level too. So we did that at board meetings. And then we had any opportunity with smaller groups and smaller teams tried to use that framework and as a way to kind of frame our discussion so that the culture, that just became how people thought about work. And at the end of the day, if you can do that, that's where your culture is just becomes woven throughout everything that you do. So interesting to hear you talk about culture and how much thought and actual work you guys put in to the culture of the company. One question I have is how do you mix cultures? Because you mentioned earlier, like having the company culture mix with regional culture. How do those mix? How do you kind of approach that kind of problem? Or is it a problem at all? It really wasn't. It wasn't a problem. Our view was that, look, the the, the regional cultures, that it's what it is. I, I'm, we're not looking here to, to, to change those. Um, I, I'm curious. I loved learning. I had never been to Belarus. I was loved learning about Belarus and Belarusian culture and had the opportunity to, to go see the ballet. Um, so we weren't looking to, to necessarily weave those into our company culture. The only thing we knew was we had people that were operating in different countries. And the biggest challenge that everyone has is time zone differences. That's it. That's, that's fundamentally what we thought from a, from a regional culture. Now, 
you have to respect when you visit and when you interact with people. I believe you have to have a, an understanding of the regional culture because that, that helps you to, to have better, more productive conversations. It's also just a fun way to get to know people and get to know different ways of thinking and how things are done. But our company culture, we viewed it had to cross geographic. It had to, it had to be something that, I guess, the, the common factor that we viewed in each of the regions that we had employees was, look, at the end of the day, they're looking to work, everyone's looking to work for a growth tech SaaS company. So what is it that, why would people get excited about that? Number one, innovation, right? If you are a, an engineer, you like to solve problems and you like to build. And whether it's building product, whether it's building a company, I mean, that's my my own background as an engineer is all predicated on, I like building stuff. And I like building companies now and culture and values are key parts of building a company. So as long as you can create a culture that taps into that, so innovation being one, we embraced agile and we felt that anyone that all people in the in the company the reason why they were hired was usually they were bringing something to the table and so rather than tell them what to do basically give them a problem and say go solve it basically give them a mission and go achieve that mission and just let us know what you need so we were, our culture was definitely based on a high level of empowerment and autonomy. Now with that comes responsibility and you have to take into account the different regions that you operate in because some regional cultures are more comfortable. And I would say have the historical tools to be able to embrace that. So if you think about the difference of the US and how we came together as a country versus India that was basically part of the British Empire, like there are different forces at work that cause people to have different ways of thinking that can that can make it more difficult to truly get your culture into those specific regions. So, but we just had to by recognizing what those regional differences were, we could work with work and encourage people that look, when you're in the confines of doing work for Capsalon, you can, you don't have to be necessarily, let's say in India or Belarus or Poland, like think of it as a kind of a safe zone where we're encouraging you to be autonomous, to make decisions, to take risks, fail fast, recognize it, learn, and keep going from there and do it all in the context of a small team because we our belief was that small teams could deliver results faster than big organizations with big teams, et cetera, or in a waterfall. So like I said, I don't think we, I don't think we didn't necessarily weave the regional cultures in. We just said, look, we are a, we are a global growth-oriented, innovation-driven tech company. And whoever is going to join us, no matter where they are in the world, they have to want that. And along with that comes this idea of autonomy and empowerment and ownership, and then ultimately delivering results. And as if people, regardless of where they are in the world, embrace that, then wonderful. Because to me, all that values and culture, one of the key things that values and culture do is they, they enable you to assemble a group of people that are aligned mm -hmm. and they're aligned around the values and they're aligned around the culture. If you can do that, then you have a powerful force behind you and a powerful group that can achieve so, so much. How, how are you going to achieve a mission with your group if you don't have alignment on your values and and that was great i mean I, I love hearing about how you successfully implemented agile they don't teach you agile in school so uh, i'm i'm working now and i'm sort of what it's like the new thing i'm learning but it is it's interesting and i think you know the small teams achieving big things is agile at its best 
So really cool to hear that uh, it, it, it can be successful. Oh, very much. I actually think it's the only way to be successful over the long term. And, and that's coming from, I've had many experiences with waterfall and I, I guess I had to partially learn agile on the fly. Um, but I've always been a believer that, you know, no matter whether you're in a, maybe a top-down hierarchical organization or in an agile organization at the end of the day, and I've, I've held this view for a long time and it seems to, seems to continue to hold water is that no matter what you're doing, you usually work with a group of, no matter what your job is, 10 to 15 or 20 people at any point in time. And that sort of is your informal agile team. Cause it's like, you always are looking for the group of people that are going to help you achieve your objective. And that is, it's usually done in an informal way, but what's been great about this whole agile revolution that's underway is that it's becoming very explicit. And so at Capsalon, we decided that we had to fully embrace agile and we we basically decompose the entire company down into a, a into teams small teams and it not just product like everyone thinks oh it's just engineering and product management and there's your small teams and hence you're agile like no 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 you have to do it across the entire organization so we did it for sales marketing our services teams like finance, HR, you name it. Everyone was part of a small team and we published that. And so we had really two things. We had our hierarchical org chart, right? That everyone is very comfortable with, but that's not how work got done in our company. We then had a separate spreadsheet, a Google sheet that listed out every single team, what their mission was, who the members were and what their role is. And so it was completely transparent to the entire company as to how this company was organized and the hierarchy in an organization that in a lot of cases is either functional organization or business unit driven. The role of that is to help people develop in their skills and their craft but it's not to get work done because if you start, if managers start mucking about with their employees, then you're automatically breaking the agile model of empowerment and autonomy, which is driven by a small team with a shared mission and then the autonomy to go achieve that mission. And all that managers and management are there to do is to set strategic guidance to help people with what they, you know, what do they need in order to achieve the mission? And then third is to help develop people in their skills outside of the context of actually getting work done. So it's a different way of thinking. And it, you know, that has, that too has to be reinforced by the defined published culture as well. So it's very complex as you think about it to, to weave all this together and to, to really set up that wiring in a company so that you can hire the right people and everyone's expectations are set as to when I join this company, how am I going to get work done? And it takes a certain, you know, agile organizations take a certain type of person who's comfortable with that, with that autonomy and then hence the responsibility that comes with it. But I don't know, I personally love it because I just want to build stuff. I want people to get out of my way so I can build it. Yeah, nothing worse than, you know, trying to solve a problem, getting 80% of the way done, and then having your manager tell you, oh, actually, we really want to do it this way. So one of the questions I have here is what makes startup culture different from that of an established enterprise? I really want to get to that. But before we do that, I think I just want to address what you guys did with your organization. You know, you're kind of by by making small teams and really defining how they interact how they have roles and responsibilities and empowering them to sort of be these small teams agile teams that that uh, at the end of the day get shit done you're kind of able to maintain that startup 
culture within an enterprise company. So you would agree with me that, you, that that's kind of what you were able to do. You got it. That is exactly what we wanted to do. We felt that the company was losing its startup roots. And, and to me, the beauty of a startup is there, there's a few things that kind of define a startup. Number one, it's small, right? And there is a usually a defined mission that you've started the company on. And there's a small group of people that are completely aligned and going after that. And you are just like rushing as fast as you can because you know that the chances are there's probably someone else who's trying to solve the same problem. And your ability to solve it faster than anyone else gives you a leg up. Uh, also that really every dollar matters because in a lot of startups, you are you may be paid less than the market, quote unquote. You may have put your own money into the startup. You may, you know, if you're earlier in your career, it's not a question of necessarily money, but you're taking a risk and, you know, people's time is valuable. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of a startup is that you just get this small group of people together. They're aligned and achieving a mission. Communication is so fast. And as you grow a company and everyone wants to, right? The success of a company, especially a tech company, is that it keeps growing and you keep solving more and more problems for customers. But the the challenge you run into is that people start getting disconnected. They there isn't that sense of urgency. There isn't that same, you know, view that, hey, this is actually my money that that we're investing here. So I want to make sure we're making the most out of it. And and then that, that disconnect, you can start seeing silos being created. And usually those silos are driven functionally because a lot most companies kind of set themselves up in terms of functional hierarchies. And then it's reinforced by the management because there's this desire to maintain control. So if you, what we, what we saw was that, hey, we wanted to come back to our entrepreneurial startup roots. We wanted people who, who ultimately wanted to succeed in their careers, but wanted to do it in such a way where they felt that they had the autonomy and the ownership to go make it happen. And that they, uh, throughout the organization, that they didn't feel that they had to get approval for someone or, you know, wait for a decision from someone else. It's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't happen in a startup. We don't want it happening here. Mm-hmm. And it really is also turning management on its head and saying, look, your goal as a manager is really not to get the work done. That's why we, we, we have teams. Your goal is to hire the best people that align with value, our values and principles in our culture and of course, have the, the requisite skills to do whatever job you're hiring for. That's number one. Like hiring is first and foremost. Number two is you're there to serve. Like we took servant leadership very seriously. And if you're, you're not asking how you can help out and help teams to succeed, like what do they need in order to succeed, then you're failing in your job. Hmm. And third is that you are there to to help grow people in their careers and to give them opportunities to coach them. We felt that managers and management had to be coaches. Like that is the best way to reinforce values and principles and culture and to make sure that people are following those. That is these coaching sessions and that the, the idea of an annual performance review is kind of bogus because People need to know how they're doing both the positives and negatives throughout the year in kind of small bite sizes and increments so they can do something with that to improve and to learn from from their job. And then lastly, you know, depending on where you are in the, the kind of management hierarchy, you're also there to set strategic direction and to, you know, help guide the company through the major changes that any company will go through from not only growing the company as it moves from one stage to the next, but kind of strategically where in the market you need to go and what problems can be solved. So it really is, it's really trying to take 
the management outside of actually doing the work, because that's why we hire people who are passionate and want to go be problem solvers. And we're just there to help. Yeah, that's why they're called managers. And that's what they do. I heard you mention that. I've heard you mention that little bit about growing the team a few times here. And I would just like to point out that that's probably one of the underrated, underrated tools at your disposal for improving the company is actually like growing the people in the company. And it goes without saying, but once you get to the company, your, your job's not done. Your work's actually just starting, but you're not there to just do the work in front of you. You're also there to grow, improve yourself and, and see what else you could do. I think it's kind of hard to do, but it's, it's, a, it's a really powerful tool. It's a, it's a really powerful tool. Yeah, no, no, it is hard to do. And yet you have to be very conscious about where you're spending your time. You can easily, and I've seen it over and over again, you can get lost in the day-to-day, -day, right? The day-to-day -day firefighting, getting work done. And the two things that usually are unconsciously deprioritized, because I believe it all comes down to priorities, is whether it's building your own career and your own, what do you want to learn as an individual or helping to coach people? If you're a manager and you have a team, that's one thing that usually fail, that usually is, is put by the wayside. And then the second is like the strategic direction. So in the context of founders, you really do have to manage your time and be very prescriptive about how you're managing your time so that you spend the appropriate time to just get shit done. You are also blocking out and spending the time to coach people. And third, you're spending the time thinking about strategy. You can do it as long as you're prescriptive about it and you hold these time periods dear when I remember I had, I think it was back at, uh, when I was at Taleo and one of the, one of the key learnings I had was we decided for my team and it was a team of about, about a hundred, 125. I, I decided, Hey, I want to do a kind of do a 360 review and have myself and my managers evaluated by the team. And so it was, it was anonymous. We created, and I, I think we did it in partnership with a, with a consultant uh, to help us create like a survey and so that people could anonymously tell us what they thought of both us as individuals, as managers. And we tried to drive it as deep in the organizations we could in terms of who would get this quote unquote 360. But I remember for my own direct reports, what came back was one of the things I was failing at was one-on-ones. I was not keeping the one-on-one -on -one times dear. Like I would cancel them. I would move them, reschedule. And so I learned from that was that I personally was not doing my part to help with their growth. That this time, this one-on-one -on -one time was should be sacrosanct. And if you get into a habit of having to cancel it, then clearly you haven't figured out the right schedule. So figure out the right schedule so that you can have that be a, uh, a very consistent thing that people rely on because you're there to help them. And as a founder, the more you can manage your time and really, at the end of the day, this applies to founders and individuals everywhere. It really is around time management. And whatever your framework is for time management, get a framework for time management because it will be invaluable so that you can make sure that you're allocating the appropriate time to, to things that are important for the company. Because you can do them all. You really can. I think that's going to be my big takeaway from this meeting is get a framework for time management. One, one thing I learned, maybe read about, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but it's a, it's a small language nuance. It's uh, typically people will say like, oh, I don't have time for that. 
I need to do X project. I, I don't have time for that. But really what you want to be saying is I am not going to make time for that. That's right. We have, we have time. But like you're saying, it's a matter of organizing it, prioritizing it, really thinking about what you're going to be doing and then committing to it. And I think, I think what you've uh, been talking about is like a critical mistake that can happen at the, at the top level, but can also happen at the bottom level. And we all need to be just diligent managers of our own time because, you know, it's like people say, it's like the most valuable resource we have. Are there any other kind of common pitfalls or mistakes that founders can make around culture or, or, or just in general that you'd like to point out? I think as founders don't consciously create their values and principles and then hence culture from the beginning and make it very explicit so that so that really people i think it just gives such a great lens into who a person is especially as a founder and if you're an early employee looking to join a startup the founder really matters and their view of the world does really matter because you're like, well, should I go spend that time? I'm not going to get paid a whole lot. I'm going to work a whole lot of hours, but can I really align with that person and the mission that they've laid out? And do I feel that they're going to have my back and that we can build a relationship, even though people may not explicitly kind of go through and and ask all these questions. I do believe that's sort of the thought process as you're making a decision as to whether to join a startup or not. And so as a founder, if you want to attract the, the highest quality people and that are aligned with what you want to do, then it's so important to define that. And then doing like we just talked about the time management side of it is allocating time each and every day to reinforcing that those values and the culture and try and make it a part of who you are and a part of how you talk to people and what you ask about and what you reinforce when given the opportunity. And, and that is, that's a time management thing, but it's also just being a believer that, values and culture actually drives overall enterprise value, right? I think there is the stigma out there that culture doesn't really lead to a higher enterprise value for a company, which ultimately is what the investors are looking for. Mm -hmm. I think fortunately we've had maybe a renaissance in this regard where investors are starting to look at things like social impact beyond just the, the dollars and cents. But if you can embrace culture as a true growth lever, which I believe it is, then, then you make that part of your just kind of how you work day in and day out. And then just reinforcing some of the, the points that we've already made, which is just don't let the day-to-day -day consume 100% of your time. At some point, that approach, like you can't just be the firefighter and stepping in and, and doing everything. If you are, then you got a problem and you probably don't have the right people around you or you're not allocating your time appropriately. Yeah. I know in, in the case of Capsulon, our founder and CEO, like he felt that his main job was driving the culture of the company and driving the wiring of the company. And he would step in and do, you know, do some things on occasion. But if he did, that was also the signal that, hmm, Maybe someone else isn't doing their job, which is why I need to step in. So then that gets to really what you have to be always evaluating is how are people doing in their jobs? Are you giving them the tools to do their job or are there blind spots that you need to coach them on? Or is it just not the right fit and you need to look outside or you need to hire or you need to promote from within someone else to do that job? I mean, we just, we looked at talent on a very regular basis. And because at the end of the day, that's what a tech company is. It's a group of smart people who are looking to solve problems. And you always need to have the, the smartest people that are the most passionate about, about what they're doing, the that are the most excited. And as a company goes through its life cycle, it always doesn't always 
kind of keep the same fit that it had for an individual. So someone who started earlier may just love the rush of like the really small startup. And as a company grows, it loses some of its luster and that's fine. But then there's people out there who love companies that are later in their, in their stage. So it, it all is, as a leader, you just have to constantly evaluate that and make sure that you are looking at talent and you know, coaching, but also where, where the fit doesn't make sense, then taking action as quickly as possible. I think that was all really well said. I think uh, that's a good place to end it. Before we get out of here, Jim, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you? Yeah, they can reach me via email, jubsitnik at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, help, happy to help out and uh, provide any thoughts, coaching that might be of help. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining the show, Jim. I think um, not only did I learn a lot, but it also kind of reinforced a lot of my own values and feel like I got my head on straight here and uh, pointed in the right direction. So thanks for joining. Let's get you back on here soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Oleg. Much appreciated.